All right. Welcome to another episode of Leading Latina. I'm so excited to have um, our guest here today. She is a DACA recipient from the University of California. We have uh, Linda Sanchez here. Um, welcome back. We actually had you on the podcast for Black, Brown, and Bilingue. It's been a while. Yes, it has. Yes, I joined you guys with uh, my advisor, Dr. Leo Chavez. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for yes. having us. And, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more just because I feel like your story is so interesting. And I really do believe that there are other Latinas out there that could benefit, um, you know, just hearing from it because there's not uh, a large community where you can like talk about like getting your PhD. And because I think the percentage is still very, very low in terms of the Latinas getting um, their PhD. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your educational journey? Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, when I was very, very little, I did not like school. <laughs> My parents brought me to the U.S. when I was five and like just trying to learn English was like so hard. But then I eventually fell in love with like reading and learning. And um, and then I, um, you know, as soon as I finished high school, I knew that I wanted to go to college, but I knew that it was going to be difficult because there was no DACA at that time. Um, so just like a really quick recap of that whole journey. Um, my parents brought me when um, I was five. Um, we applied for um, legal residency in 1994. Um, it took from 1994 to 2007 for them to get to our number. Of course, I applied with my family because I was a child. Um, but by 2007, I was already... Um, over 21 and technically not part of the family anymore. So I aged out and I didn't get anything. When my dad became a legal resident, he reapplied for me and um, he's now a citizen. Like everyone's fine except for, uh, except for me. Like I'm still waiting. Um, and my case is not unique. A lot of people, this happens to a lot of people. A lot of people age out. It's that there's very long um, backlogs for visas. And I mean, um, yeah, like I, I like looked this up and it turns out that, you know, um, people who applied, like, I'll give you an example, people who applied for legal residency in 2018, 14% of them can expect to die without their number ever coming up. Like we are that backed up. So, you know, it's a system that it's not working. We need oh to completely God. revamp it. But I guess I'm straying from the question a little bit. No, so but it's me... so important, though. Because, yeah. because, you know, people always talk about, well, just do it the right way or mm -hmm. just wait your turn in line. It could literally be years and years and years. Decades, right. And I think it's this is not an accident. This is, I think this is done very deliberately, right? Um, so that definitely influenced the trajectory that I took as far as my education journey I went to community college because I knew that I couldn't I could never afford the tuition right um, luckily I graduated high school in 2001 which uh, means that I was fortunate enough to take advantage of AB 540 status which allowed me to attend community college without paying out-of-state tuition because before that undocumented people would have to pay out-of-state tuition even though they grew up in California so imagine how difficult that would be right so yeah so um that's what I did and then 
I just, you know, worked a lot and um, went to school because I couldn't get student loans or scholarships. Um, yeah, most scholarships and any kind of financial aid at that time was for um, legal residents or citizens. So, um, so I did that. Um, I had to take semesters off because sometimes I couldn't afford tuition. So I think it took me longer than most people, but you know what, that's okay. It's not a race. And then right when I was finishing my master's, I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a master's degree and what am I going to do with it? Like, I'm not even going to be able to work legally. Right. Um, and then right when I was finishing it up is when DACA went through. So I was like, oh my goodness, like, wow. Um, so that allowed me to work legally. I taught community college for a few years. And then I thought, you know, I've always wanted to do a PhD, so why not? Um, and then, yeah, thanks to DACA, I was able to get funding um, for my PhD program. And yeah, and honestly, like, I'm really enjoying it. Um, I, I mean, it's definitely difficult. Like people ask me like, oh, um, is, is doing a PhD hard? Like a lot of undergrads ask me that. And I'm like, yes, it is hard. But for me, because like my, earlier years in school were so difficult that like for me this is really easy oh, it's wow. like you know or it's a lot easier like oh wow like I you know I don't have to stress about health insurance like I know that I'm gonna get paid next month right like yeah I don't get paid a lot I'm a grad student <laughs> but it's it's more than before so to me it's been it's been really great it's been a great journey wow okay so you just touched upon so many things, right? Um, the It's funny because a lot of my colleagues who and friends who have gone either PhD or EDD route as educators, uh, many of them share that going through it, it was like PTSD now, like <laughs> they're traumatized, but look at what a wonderful perspective you bring that in comparison to everything that you had to go through, I'm sure this is like what you've dreamed of and this is what you wanted. So it's interesting exactly. that you have that perspective. Um, now, in terms of what you said something earlier about that, that number and that percentage being very deliberate. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because, you know, I remember, and I don't want to quote statistics that, you know, aren't accurate, but there is a limited number of visas that are given out. And depending on the, your country of origin, they will get approved or not. And some countries get more number approved, if I'm not wrong, or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's it's very deliberate. And it seems like Latin American countries in particular don't get a lot of like openings. Right. Yeah. Well, so in 1991, they established quotas based on countries. Mm. So the more people there is applying to uh, visas from certain countries, the, the more there is, the longer they, they have to wait, right? So like the longest wait times right now are for, I believe, China, the Philippines, India, and Mexico. Mm -hmm. So you know, here I am, like I've been waiting since 1994. And yeah, I call it deliberate. So because my research looks at individuals that um, could not apply to DACA for whatever reason, right? Maybe they qualified, but they didn't have enough money or they grew up in the US and they should have really they should have qualified but DACA had a lot of requirements like like age restrictions like I'm on the very old end of DACA I think had I been like one or two years older I would have not qualified so um I I, I say deliver it because I noticed with um, not just people who couldn't get DACA but a lot of immigrants it's like the barriers they face 
um, you know, they're really state created because um, uh, these things are not um, by accident, right? They, um, they're, they're laws, um, they make um, requirements very hard to obtain, like the paperwork, um, it's also very expensive, right? Like uh, to like change your status. So a lot of people just can't afford it. So that's why I say that it's I, it's it's intentional, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah um, that's it's so it's one of my frustrations, right? Because I know some of the challenges that I had to go through, um, you know, moving through the education system here. But I'm a U.S. citizen, and I can't even imagine like the additional hurdles. But I also have family, like my cousins. Um, who, to be honest, some of them I didn't even know were undocumented, but they were brought here as children, and um, it took like 30 years to get uh, their legal residency. Um, you talked about the concept of aging out. What is that age requirement? Yeah, the age. So you're considered a part of your family up until you're 21, mm. and that's it. So even if you know, even if you've been waiting all these decades, it doesn't matter. Like uh, once you turn 21, you're basically seen as not part of the family anymore. But then how are you supposed to put in an application if you're a child? That doesn't make any sense. So, again, this is why I say that these things are not by accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, can we at least align it to insurance? I think we can be on our parents' insurance until you're 26, <laughs> I think, right? <laughs> Um, I, I believe you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So come on, consistency. Um, so let's talk about your PhD, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what you're studying and what you're focusing on? Yeah. So um, I am focusing on. Um, so I'm doing my PhD in anthropology, which is the study of people. Um, there's four branches: um, linguistic anthropology, which looks at languages; physical anthropology, which looks at um, forensic, bones, uh, primates, all that physical stuff. Archaeology, which looks at past cultures, and um, culture anthropology, which looks at present day cultures. So that's what I focus on. Um, more specifically, I focus on immigration. And even more specifically than that, I look at individuals who um, could not get DACA for one reason or another, and I compare them to a group that did get DACA. Oh, wow. So I interviewed 20 people with DACA and 20 people without, um, and I conducted my research in San Diego County and Orange County. Wow, do you, can you disclose like preliminary findings or? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yes, yeah, so, you know, I don't know, I'm just hearing a lot of stories um, really sad stories, you know. So all of my participants are Mexican. 75% um, of DACA recipients are Mexican, but there are DACA recipients from all over the world, you know, African countries, um, South Korea, and also European countries. Um, and um, one of the things that I realize is that a lot of the times you see failure um, on two nation states, right? Like for instance, a lot of my, one of my participants, um, she was born in Las Islas Marias, uh, which is, or was a penal colony off the coast of Nayarit. Um, her dad was um, a, 
an inmate there and inmates were allowed to bring their wives to live with them. She was born there. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they couldn't get a birth certificate. I believe you have to go to the mainland to do that. Um, so when she turned three, her parents brought her to the U.S. and um, she couldn't apply to DACA because she doesn't have a birth certificate. And she tried numerous times to go to the Mexican consulate and get a birth certificate and they just wouldn't issue her one. So I think that she's a really good example of how like both nation states have failed this individual, right? Uh, Mexico couldn't even issue a birth certificate. And then the U.S. has no protection for stateless people, which she technically is because she doesn't have any identification. And then on top of that, she can't get DACA. So, yeah, so I saw that a lot. Um, another kind of thing I'm looking into is just like um, a concept that I'm borrowing from environmental studies, which is called slow violence. Mm -hmm. And because in immigration, we always think of immigration as something that happens across spaces, like crossing borders, right? But it there's also this time dynamic to it. Mm -hmm. um, like I've been waiting for a long time and what kind of violence does that inflict on people? Um, slow violence was originally used to look at the um, effects of environment degradation on poor communities. Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of borrowing that to use it for immigration purposes because it does fit very nicely, yeah. right? Um, uh, there's a lot of harm that can be inflicted by making somebody wait for decades. I, that is so fascinating. Now, <clears throat> who has helped you, right? Like I, I always think of those instrumental people. If I reflect on my life, there were three very key individuals who helped me. Who have been some of those people that have helped you along the way? Yeah, well, um, I think first and foremost, my mom, <laughs> because she, she always you know, she always has pushed me to follow my dreams, even if there's huge barriers, right? Um, or she's never said like, oh, no, that's that's too hard, you know, or you're just a woman, like, you won't be able to do that. So um, first and foremost, my mom, without a doubt. I think secondly, a lot of my professors. Um, so for instance, um, during my master's, I had a wonderful advisor. Um, she's a professor at San Diego State. Her name is Dr. Ramona Perez. And she was very instrumental in my academic journey and applying to graduate school. And now, of course, uh, my advisor, Dr. Leo Chavez, and then other people on my committee, like Dr. Susan Coutine and Dr. Uh, Lee Kabatigan. So I think, uh, yeah, my mom and my teachers and also my elementary school teachers. Yeah. <laughs> I've had some really amazing teachers, so I'm really, really fortunate. Now on the DACA side, because I'm 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 intrigued by this. Was there anyone that like helped you through that process? Because it seems like it would be very like cumbersome. Yeah, it's very daunting because they require a lot of paperwork. Like they require you to write down every address that you ever had, like in in the U.S. So you know, I don't know. I moved around a lot, right? So my dad was like driving everywhere, like trying to get our old addresses. Um. No, I think, you know, just just um, talking to people who already had DACA, mm -hmm. um, talking to um, immigrant rights organizations to help me fill out the paperwork. And obviously, like my lawyer, I was too afraid to do it without a lawyer. So like me and my family saved up money and we hired a lawyer to to help me with it because it was. Yeah, it's very, very daunting. And I was so afraid that, you know, anything I, I 
do wrong. This could be rejected. And this is my lifeline, basically, right? Totally. That's what I'm saying. Like, that would be so stressful because I know, I don't know who I, even like um, when I apply for like loan forgiveness for being an educator, you know, like they're very particular about the paperwork. And if you don't have the date range accurately or something, they'll make you start all over. And so I would imagine uh, that with DACA, it's like the same thing, like, you know, very particular, very precise. And if you don't, um, you know, do it just right, it could, like you said, there's your lifeline. Now, do you, what do you think is the future of DACA? Do you think it's here to stay? Is that a constant fear? Yes, um, that's a very good question. It absolutely is a constant fear. As you know, um, Trump, uh, former President Trump rescinded DACA in September of 2017. So unfortunately, right now, even if you qualify for DACA, you can't apply for the first time. If you already have a work permit, you can renew it, but otherwise you can't. So I, yeah, it's, it's stressful. It's always kind of in the back of my head because I, it's kind of, I feel that unfortunately it has turned into this like political football, right? Where mm -hmm. some people want to get rid of it. Some people want it to stay. So yeah, it's scary. It's scary not knowing if it's going to stay. I mean, it's already been around for 12 years and unfortunately DACA does not offer any pathway to citizenship, right? So it's kind of this limbo status, if you will. And that's very... Yeah, it's, it, it kind of leaves you in this very vulnerable position. Um, any kind of little mistake you make, you know, you can get it revoked because you have to renew it every two years. And, um, and is yeah. that a tedious process or is it is it better than the original? Um, it's better than the original, but it's still the same price. Um, it's about $500 to apply or to renew it plus lawyer fees which depending on where you go can work, can range anywhere from like 300 to $500. So you're, you know, you're talking about a thousand dollars every two years to renew your work permit. So yeah, it can get, it can get stressful. Absolutely. Mm. What do you think is the biggest misconception about DACA recipients? I think the biggest misconception is that we're all like valedictorians or something like that. You know, unfortunately, mm -hmm. I think DACA has been used as, um, you know, this to compare or to use it as like, oh, well, these immigrants deserve to be here. And then these immigrants don't, right? Like, our, oh, our parents don't deserve to be here. But look at these valedictorians, they deserve to be here. Um, which I think is very unfortunate because you know, the person who has DACA working at McDonald's, they deserve to be here just as much as anybody else. So, right? I mean, why? I have we... never thought about it like that. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the way. I mean, it started, it started with good Girl, intentions. you're so right. <laughs> no, but it's true. And I think it started with good intentions, right? Because right. immigrant advocates were trying to push back against the idea that immigrants just come here to take, 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 right? But then that kind of turned into a life of its own. And um, it's used to like, you know, for deservingness purposes to create like the deserving immigrant versus the undeserving immigrant. So, yeah, so I, I kind of have issues with that. Also, DACA recipients in many ways have gotten a lot of support where other people like people with TPS, you know, like they didn't really get um, that much support that I saw. So, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's unfortunate you just challenged my thinking linda like 
You're right. Even in my brain, I do think of DACA recipients as valid, or not maybe necessarily valedictorians, but like college educated. But many times people are escaping or, you know, just in search of a better future. And that is, man, you left me speechless. Like people, like you said, at McDonald's are just as deserving if that's what they're, you know, coming here for. And it's probably better than what they could be, you know, going through in their home country. Yeah. Um, why, why is that any less deserving? If, especially if you're not hurting anyone, you don't have to all be valedictorians. Wow. You're, you're so right. That is such a huge misconception. And, and then the other thing is, you know, it's like, I, I know how much I struggled to be here on this PhD program. So I can imagine a lot of people um, maybe weren't as fortunate, right? And there were all these obstacles. So it makes sense that, you know, we're maybe a smaller percentage, like people that could get college educated who have DACA. So yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. That is so interesting that you point that out. So um, what, how far are you into your program? Do you have kind of like an anticipated date or? Yes, I'm almost done. I'm hoping to be done June of 2023. Woo! <laughs> I don't know about that. Yes, I'm so excited. And my goal is to become a professor. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, tenure track professor jobs are hard to get. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, if, if I don't get a tenure track professor job, I'm happy to work with like a nonprofit or, you know, or even going to industry, you know, like working um, at a company, as long as I can still do outreach in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's kind of the end goal. So fingers crossed. (laughs) Yes. What has been the most challenging part about the PhD process, do you think? I think the, oh, it's gosh, the most challenging is just, I think that, um, I think the time it takes, right? Like it's, you devote so many years of your life and then you get a lot of this imposter syndrome, right? Where it's like, oh, well, I'm not good enough. Like, why am I really here? Maybe they just made a mistake. Um, And especially because I feel like there's not that many like Latinas in um, like higher education and doing PhDs, right? So you always kind of, I guess, question yourself in a way. So I think those two things, like the time it takes to do it um, and then kind of just insecurities, I guess. Mm -hmm. I have that too. That is so funny. Sometimes I'll be in my building in my school and I will be like, who trusted me with all these people? (laughs) (laughs) Like just me, little me, who trusted me with all these kids and all these adults and you know, it's a lot to, to, you know, oversee a building, a school building. So yeah, it's, it's so tough because you, uh, you know, at the same time we're raised, you know, as Mexicanas, I think to be very humble, right? Yes, absolutely. So you always have to work against that mentality. And it's so, so hard. And even when it's like, okay, I accomplished something, I'm proud. And then I'm like, it's gonna happen like I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop or you know like yeah it's very very challenging um so just to kind of start getting um towards the end like so far what do you think has been your biggest accomplishment oh my biggest accomplishment like you mean education journey or overall overall? honestly I think I think that 
getting to where I'm at now as far as my education, um, you know, becoming a doctoral candidate, I think that has been my biggest accomplishment because it was one of my biggest dreams. If you would have told me, oh, you're going to be doing your PhD, like if you would have told me this in community college, I would have been like, get out of here. Like, you're joking, right? <laughs> like, I wanted to do it ever since I feel like this is going to sound weird, but I feel like ever since I was in community college, I knew that I wanted to get a PhD. That's and true. yeah, and it was so I think I think that has been my biggest accomplishment. And it's gonna be a so far because you're gonna get that. <laughs> thank you, breath. thank you. I, I hope so. <laughs> all right. So what advice uh would you give Latinas out there who aspire to follow in your footsteps? You know, I think this is gonna sound cliche, but just like keep doing it, you know, even if even if you get people out there saying that like, oh, it can't be done or, or you can't do it because of your status or because of your age or because of whatever, um, just keep doing it, you know, because where there's a will, there's a way. And I, I do believe that. So I, I would just say, you know, keep going. Mm -hmm. And that network, that network piece, is it? what's your network like now? Like, do you have fellow PhD candidates or what are you doing to keep yourself afloat? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, friends, family, right? Um, people in the program, people um, here at UCI, people also at uh, UCSD, right? Because now I, well, I've been a visiting fellow there. Now I'm coming to the end of my visiting fellowship, but I've met some great people there, you know, um, some great women. And um, yeah, and we got to just like support each other, right? Yes. But also like my family and friends. So like my net, I definitely feel like my network is growing. Good. Yeah. Um, I, all my friends say that they have like a texting thread or like hang in there, type one more chapter this weekend or something. Like it's just to, to keep you going. All right. Well, oftentimes we talk about our culture, right? And where this is all about Latinas. We focus on the struggles, which, you know, they make us who we are. They make us, you know, resilient. Um, but very seldomly do we focus on the joy of being Latina. What is your greatest joy related to being? Oh, thank you for asking that question. I think you're absolutely right. We often don't focus on, you know, the joy in our life and the joy of being Latina. Oh my gosh, there's so many, so many things. Um, but I would say my favorite thing, and maybe this is because I'm a cultural anthropologist, is having two cultures, mm -hmm. right? Having like my American culture and then having my Mexican culture, mm -hmm. because I just find that's really amazing. And I kind of feel sorry for people that only have one culture. <laughs> I said that too. <laughs> it's so true. Cause it's like, I can go, you know, I can go from, you know, dancing cumbias and speaking Spanish to like, you know, whatever, hanging out in academia and going, yeah. hanging out with friends in, in Newport Beach or wherever, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that's great. I, I speak fluent Spanish mm -hmm. and I think that just like knowing another language is so beautiful because um, it's almost like a different way of thinking, right? A different way of like looking at the world. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's my favorite thing. Just having being able to have two cultures. That is so good. I always talk about like, cause I love to laugh. I love jokes. I love memes. I'm such a millennial. Um, and I always joke that 
I get to laugh at, at twice the amount of memes because I can read them in Spanish. And I can That's so true. English. Yeah. I get to laugh at more things. And I also think that when you do have more than one culture that you identify with, you're able, like, I feel like my ability to connect with people, even like not American or like white American, I feel like I can connect to those people more easily as yeah. well because it's that othering, I guess, or, or we're somehow different and yet that brings us together, right? And I'm able yeah. to kind of shift perspectives more easily than some of my like white colleagues or counterparts. No, it's very true. I think it's so true. You know, I, I mean, I haven't really had the chance to tra to travel because of my status, but, you know, I think that I find it very easy to relate to other cultures, right? And I think it's partly because I, I do have two cultures, right? And I do speak two languages. And I think you're absolutely right about that. It it does kind of connect you to, to other people. I guess it just makes you a, a more um, well-rounded person. Yes, I agree. And yes, I love it. So thank you so much um, for taking some time to chat with me today. Any final thoughts? Um, no, not really. I just want to say thank you so much for having me. Um, I really, really appreciate it. It's always lovely to chat with you. So thank you so much. And I hope to get you back on once you're Dr. Sanchez or Dr. Sanchez. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, I would love to come back. So okay. yes. Hang in there. All right. I'm so proud thank of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. We'll be in touch. That sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.